Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. It's good to be back. We we took a couple weeks off. We just uh, had a nice vacation down in Florida, and uh, praise be to God, it was nice. So welcome back, everybody coming from SoundCloud. I hope you didn't miss us. Um, anyway, going to get back into the Word here. It's a beautiful day at March here in <clears throat> McKinney, Texas, and I'm glad to be back in the house of the Lord and listen to the Word of God. It's a privilege and an honor to me to be up here and able to give you all the things that God has shown me this week. And so if you guys are ready, let's have a word of prayer and let's uh, see what God says to us. So if you want to join me, please. Lord, thank you so much for all that you do for us, Lord. Thank you so much that you love us and that you draw people to yourself, Lord, and that you're so good and you're so kind and you're so caring. Lord, I thank you so much that you reveal yourself to me all the time in different ways, <clears throat> at, through different things. And Lord, I just thank you so much, Lord, that for the intimate relationship that we now are able to have with you through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So, Lord, we just I pray for this serving, this message, Lord God, for our, for our time together, Lord God. I pray that you would bless it, Lord. I pray that you would help us to hear you clearly today. Lord, I don't want to hear me, and I don't want to hear anybody else, Lord. I want to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray you'd speak through me, or that you'd help me to communicate all the things that you taught me this week, and all the things that, you know, I learned this week, and the things that are all in my notes. And I just pray you'd help me to communicate all this to everybody that's listened to this message, Lord, clearly, plainly, and so that, Lord, everybody can understand, because that's your heart, Lord. You want everybody to understand what you have to say. You don't want anybody to be confused because your desire is that none should perish and all should come to repentance. So Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you for this message and I thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit and, and all that you do for us. Pray you, you bless this word today. Bless our hearts and help us to understand you and help us to hear you clearly. And Then Lord, help us not just to hear you, but Lord, be doers of what we hear, not just hearers only. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name, God. Amen. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to finish out the chapter today, verses 41 through 46. Again, Matthew chapter 22, the last verses in the chapter, verses 41 through 46. And I'll, I'll start that, of course, right after my recap of my thoughts from last week's a couple weeks ago's message, I should say, a question to divide. So my thoughts from that sermon that we had a couple weeks ago. In our last week's message, in our last message, we looked at how the Pharisees tried to make Jesus' followers divided against him by asking the question, remember what it was, which commandment of God is the greatest? This is from that sermon, a question to divide. They weren't able to succeed at dividing Jesus' followers because of his divine and perfect answer, if you remember correctly. He gives them the perfect answer, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But unfortunately, Satan has done a really good job of dividing Christians and God's followers from one another since Jesus was resurrected and left the earth. Not now, I mean, because it's still happening now, unfortunately, and it's happened all throughout the history. You know, the devil's gotten into Christian churches and been able to divide us pretty good, but it even started happening right after Christ left. Shortly after he ascended to heaven, the devil was working at dividing the first century Christian church using Jews that had supposedly been converted to Christianity. The problems and divisions started one when God started saving Gentiles, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius is the first Gentile that we have recorded of that gets saved. Well, the Jews were against the Gentiles coming to know God. They were against Gentiles coming and having a relationship with God. Um, unfortunately, they, they, they thought only Jews 
were the ones that were supposed to be able to have a relationship with God and have salvation uh, through God and through Christ. And so they immediately started this, this caused division. This caused them to start complaining, you know, about, well, Gentiles, oh, that's not, you know, that's not right. Oh, it's, the promises are for the Jews, you know, the promises are for the Jews. We can't have Gentiles in the church and, you know, it's supposed to be Jews only. And so that was a big to-do. But we know from the teachings of Jesus Christ and also from the rest of the Old Testament, from different parts of the prophets, that God had spoken and Christ had spoken about how because of the rejection of the Jews, you know, Gentiles were going to be called by God to come on in and start partaking of the promises because the Jews rejected Christ. So that was the first main thing that, you know, the devil did through Christians to start dividing the church. Right after that, after that was settled, you'd say, these so-called Jewish converts, weren't. it wasn't enough that they complained about Gentiles coming in, but now there was another big issue. The next big issue that they had that they started causing division was in the fact that the Gentiles that were getting saved weren't getting circumcised. And that was the next biggest thing, the next biggest point of division. You see, under the old covenant, Jews were required to be circumcised as a seal of that covenant. But once Christ came and made a new covenant in the covenant of his blood, God no longer required his followers to be circumcised. Not that circumcision, mind you, is a bad thing. Circumcision is a good thing, I think, for cleanliness and for, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff. But as far as being holy before God or being uh, right with God or, you know, having a, you know, that, that seal to that covenant, it was no longer needed because God set down a new seal to the covenant. And that was the covenant in Christ's blood, not the outward circumcision of, you know, a male part. Well, when the Gentiles started getting saved and not circumcised, these so-called Jewish Christians were complaining about it and causing division and trying to make circumcision a stipulation for salvation. Saying that is, if the Gentiles didn't get circumcised, well, then they weren't going to be saved. As if God required the blood, or as if the blood of his son Jesus Christ wasn't enough to save us. Now we needed to do an outward physical act you know, above circumcision. So, but did it work? This is the biggest one, unfortunately. This one didn't go away. This one worked very well. It absolutely did. It was such a big deal that it became a huge problem in the first century church. Paul writes about this topic a good deal in the New Testament, and he doesn't have anything good to say about it because here's the problem. People were walking away from God's grace and turning to the works of the flesh for salvation. And there is, the Bible says, no salvation by works, period. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Even the work of salvation, even the work of baptism, not of works. Any work, any good work, the Bible says, least anyone should boast. Because if we can do a good work or an outward show of how you know, dedicated we were or a good work to earn that salvation from God, then of course we'd be able to boast before him, well, oh God, look at, look at that good job that I did and I'll, you know, made, making sure all my family you know, got circumcised or oh, look how many people I got baptized or look, Lord, I got baptized before you, all right, see, I deserve my salvation. But God doesn't save because we do good works. God saves because he loves and because he pours out and gives out his grace free, not because we work for that gift, because there's no work that we can attach to salvation. Well, division between people, to pe- you know, division between people and, of course, division between God and people was the result of this teaching that was coming into the church. These Jews that brought this teaching in that we needed to have be circumcised in order to be saved and Christian. God's desire is not division. It's unity. It's coming together. It's being united. Like-mindedness is God's way, not division. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And that was Christ's words himself, not mine. And if we can't be united will be divided 
and we will fall. So Christians, we need to start, we need to stand together, not be so divided so that the Christian church doesn't fall. I've been evangelizing people for about 14 years of my life since I became a Christian. And one of the things that a lot of people have to say that are not Christians is, well, look at how divided your church is. Look at how many, they don't say those exact words, but they'll say something along the lines of, look at how many Christian churches there are, and look at how many denominations there are. And they're right. We shouldn't have so many denominations. Different churches, churches, mind you, one church can't house everybody. And, you know, churches, plentiful, that's great. But denominations, so many, not so great. So with all that being said about this division, you know, Satan bringing this division into the Christian church, and he's worked and it's done, he's done really good at it since the beginning, what can we learn from it? Today, we can learn a warning. We can take a warning away from it. The devil will try to bring division into, listen now, he'll try to bring division into your church, We've seen it happen historically. He'll, you'll try to bring division into your family. I've seen it. He'll try to bring division into your household, just in any way he can. Your friendships. If you have a friend or friends, uh, he'll try to divide you from your friends and your friends from you. He'll even div- try to divide you at your job. And really, in fact... Every single solitary relationship that you have in your life, he will try to divide it, period. Paul saw it coming and he spoke to the Ephesian elders for the church-wise in Acts 20, 29 through 30. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So these evil people were going to come in pretending to be Christians. You know, wolves in sheep's clothing, you'd say. Verse 30, Also from among yourselves men will rise up, So even from inside the church, listen, men will rise up speaking perverse things. Why? What's their goal? To draw away the disciples after themselves. Or in other words, you could say, to divide. So Paul knew it was coming, and he speaks about it even in Acts, warning us. Did we listen, unfortunately? No. But it happens, and Satan's good at it. We have to take a warning away from it and be aware Satan will try to divide, and it's not really a matter of if he will try, but when he will try. So since we know he will try, what can we do? We can be prepared for it. How can we be prepared for it? We need to be watching out for those things that bring division, those topics, those those spiritual discussions that we have, those people that will come into church and try to bring their different beliefs or speaking perverse things, you know, trying to draw away the disciples after themselves. We need to be aware of these things. And we need to do what when we see it? We need to stand against the people that are going to come in doing evil, and we need to stand against even those divisive conversations that we can have and, and agree to disagree and not, you know, let division be such a part of what happens. Because people are going to have different opinions on Scripture does not mean that we have to be divided over them. We can let our division, we can let our divisions bring strength to us. We can let our differences of opinions bring strength to us. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about it like that. Maybe it's all true kind of thing. Instead of being so divided on different things. We cannot we gotta stop letting differences in scripture separate us from one another. We gotta stop letting people come into the church and bring in these divisive things. So Christians, we need to stand up and be on guard and stop letting Satan be so successful at dividing us from one another. He's been he's been good so far, but I just hope that anyone that's listening will be on guard for this and will be watching and you know, we'll put a stop to this and, and start loving others and, and truth and, you know, standing up against that devil and stop letting them divide us so much. All right. Well, anyway, let's move on to our this week's message. Our title of this new sermon that we have today is The Son of God and the Son of Man. We're going to read over Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, and then we're going to learn what God has to say to us today. So if you want to join me, And we're going to read along here, Matthew chapter 22, 41 through 46. I'm going to read it. 
verse 41. So while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. If if David then calls him, the Christ, you could say, Lord, how is he, the Christ, his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So today we have a new set of verses to study. But if you notice, they are a continuation of the scribe's question to Christ about which commandment of God is the greatest. Now, as we read in our last sermon, if you remember, the Pharisees sent their big gun, their scribe. Remember, he was an expert in interpreting the laws of God. So the Pharisees sent in their big gun, their big dog, to, to into Jesus, onto Jesus, to, tell, you know, to ask him this dividing question. Of course they fail. We talked about this, you know, a couple weeks ago. Because who can outwit God, right? I mean, absolutely, God's wisdom is so much higher than our wisdom. He has every answer to every question we could ask, even before we ask it. So, after they fail to succeed in dividing Christ's followers from him, they give up and they decide to never question him again. We read that over last week. Now, at this point, as far as they are concerned... Their conversation with Christ is finished. They even said here at the end here, uh, you know, or or at the end of the last section, and another section I think was either Mark or Luke, we talked about how they had made that decision, then that's it. Or we're done. We're not going to ask him no more questions. (laughs) We're finished. He has every answer, and he makes us look stupid every single time we ask him a question. So I'm sure that's what was going through their minds. So they just decided, that's it. I'm done. We're done. You know, leave him alone. You know, we'll we'll try to, and what do they do? They they go around, they try to catch him another way, is what happens, what they do. But nevertheless, they they decide they're not going to attack him with questions anymore. But they may be done on their side. But you see, Christ is not quite done with them. He now has something to say. You know, they came all those times and did all, you know, came with all those questions. But now Christ says, no, I, I want to turn. So he has something to say now and he picks the perfect opportunity to do it too. Look at 41 again. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, asked them so what did he do He waited until they were all gathered together. I'm sure the Pharisees were like a clip off. I I kind of imagine this. Because remember, the Pharisees send the scribe. So after Jesus kind of destroys the scribe's argument again, as he had all other times, any questions that ever come to him with, I'm sure he kind of, with his tail between his legs, I'm sure he kind of moseyed back over to his group, the Pharisees. So while they're standing there all together, I could imagine Jesus now walking over to them. Hey, hey! by the way, guys, uh, I got a question for you. So Jesus, if you notice, was an opportunist. Jesus took every opportunity and used it for the kingdom of God, as we see here together, as they were gathered together. So what does Jesus have to say? He has actually a couple questions for them. See, they had their chance to ask Jesus some questions to test him, and they had been doing it for a long time. But now, Jesus takes the perfect opportunity to ask them some questions to test them. See, the Bible says that God won't tempt you. Like, for instance, God won't tempt us to sin. Like, oh, look at this, my son or my daughter. Oh, look at this wonderful thing. Come, let's sin. God will never tempt you to sin. Devil is the one that tempts us to sin. God never tempts us to sin. But the Bible does say that God will test us. And so here we see here that Jesus takes an opportune time to test these guys with a couple questions. So let's look at his first question. Look at verse 42, just at his question. He says to them, What do you think about the Christ? 
Whose son is he? So, a simple enough question to any Jew. I'll explain in a minute. Any Jew would have known this. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. He just asked them, in a sense, in other words, from which Jewish man's bloodline or lineage was the Christ supposed to be born into? Now, notice he says the Christ. Now, he claimed to be the Christ. But notice here, just, you know, kind of like putting it in middle ground here, you know, and I'll do this with people too, you know, I, I believe in God. And when I'm talking about people with, you know, talking about God with people, I'll say, well, you know, I, I mean, I believe in God, but let's just say a neutral thing. What, what if, you know, if there was a God, what about this? And, and what about these things? What about these things? And I'll kind of do the same thing. Well, Jesus did the same thing here. You know, whose, whose son is the Christ or, or from what lineage or bloodline was the Christ going to be born into? Notice he wasn't referring to himself. He just said the Christ. He was trying to, he was, he's making a point here. So any Jew would have known this. Did these guys know this? Verse 42, look at their answer. They said to him, the son of David. So they agree. Clearly they understand Jesus' question, which lineage or which bloodline was the Christ going to be born into? They jump right in there and they admit that the Christ will come through the bloodline of David. Well, you see... 800 to 1,000 year years before Jesus was born, God prophetically told King David of the Jewish nation of Israel that the Messiah or Christ would be born from his lineage or his bloodline. We find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God tells David through the prophet Nathan, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established Forever. So in that prophecy, God came to David, the great King David of Israel, through the prophet Nathan and said, Your child, one of your children, he didn't say which, he just said, from, but from your body, from your bloodline will come my Savior, my Messiah, or in, Jew, or, or in Hebrew, my Mashiach, will come from your bloodline, my Christ will come from your bloodline, David. Wow, that is an honor, right? I, I would think that that's honoring. That, that, and and you know, God did. God did honor David. No matter what, I, I know that David was a great sinner. David did commit some heinous sins. But David always, even though he committed some heinous sins, David always repented before God. David always surrendered to God, and David always put his total faith and trust in God, no matter what, even though he committed some heinous sins. And so for this, God completely honored him greatly, because he was a great king, a great king of faith. God honored him greatly by allowing the Messiah, the, the Christ, to be born from his bloodline. So Jesus and the Pharisees both agree finally on something. Notice they don't really agree much in Scripture. The Pharisees come and Jesus says, well, what about this? And what about this? And then they're like, oh, man, we didn't think about that, you know, and they're wrong. But here they finally agree that the Christ will come from the bloodline of David or from David's throne. It's a very simple question to start off with that any, again, any regular Jew would have known. You see, all, all Jews knew this scripture, 2 Samuel. It was read in their, it was read in their Bibles, it was read in their Tanakhs and, and you know in their temple and then their, their little you know synagogues and stuff like that. So all the Jews knew the promise of, of that God had given to David. So pretty simple question. Jesus asked them, which bloodline will the Christ be born from? They all the son of David. Any Jew would have known it, practically. But now here's my next, here's my kind of I have a question. Why would Jesus ask such a simple question that any, practically any plain Jew or ordinary Jew could answer to these highly educated Jewish scholars who knew the Bible left, right, top, bottom, up, down, sideways, crossways? Why? Why? Such a simple question. He knew that they knew the answer to that question. But still, why ask such a simple question to such highly educated Jews? Well, look at verses 43 through 45, because he's got something else to say here. He has his second question to ask. So he said to them, 
How then does David, King David, in the spirit, in a vision you could say, call him, that would be the Christ, Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Because he asked him that first question because he wanted to set him up for this second question. Notice in this question, Jesus quotes them Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, the Lord sit at my, this is the, the exact Psalm 110, 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This, in case you don't know, is, the, is a prophetic psalm that King David wrote talking about a revelation that God had allowed him to see. David saw this prophecy. He saw God speaking to the Christ. And he said to him, while David saw this, the Lord said to my Lord, my Lord meaning my, the one that come from my, my bloodline, but my Lord, my master, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm contained verse 1 along with a little bit about what the Christ would do when he came to earth. So the question Jesus asked them is really an amazing one, but it's also kind of a confusing one. But the answer is full of the power of God. Let me explain and let's find out why. I'll I'll explain why it's confusing, but amazing, but full of the power of God. Let's look at 45 again. Jesus ends this question with, If David then calls him Lord... How is he his son? Breaking down the question with the idea Jesus brings up here, we see this. The highly exalted Jewish King David, who is the bloodline father of the Christ, calls the Christ, which is his son, his Lord. Or, in Greek here, kiros, which means to he to whom a person or thing belongs about which he has power over deciding his master, his Lord. So David calls his son in the spirit, master, Lord, the one to whom I belong. David just said this of his son. How is this confusing? Well, The father just called the son his master, the one to whom he belonged. Wow. Why? A son belongs to the father. The father doesn't belong to the son, right? No culture does the the father belong to the son. In every culture, the normal is the son belongs to the father. You know, until the son is 18 years old, in fact, any crime that the son commits goes on the father, goes on the family, goes on the parents. But David just called his bloodline son, the Christ, his Lord, master, the one to whom he belonged. What? That's confusing. To be correct within a human understanding and societal norms, even in our society today, a son would never, or a father would never say to a son, my master, that would never happen. So to be within societal norms today even, David should have said, you know, he should have called the Christ his son there in that psalm, not his Lord or his master. So the Lord, meaning God, said to my Lord, he should have said, the Lord my God said to my son, Sit at my footstool, sit at my side, or stand at my side until I make your enemies your footstool, or sit at my side. So that's what he should have said, but he didn't. He said, the Lord said to my master, or my son, okay, when he should have said, the Lord said to my son, but he didn't. According to what David wrote in Psalm 110, he humbles himself and calls his bloodline son his Lord or his master. Wow, that's confusing. Why would any father say that of their son? In any culture, this would be strange and an unacceptable thing to do, but especially in the Jewish culture. The father in the Jewish society would never call his son 
lord, owner, or master. A Jewish father would in fact probably die before he would call his son master. An example to back this up, we go to Genesis 37, 5-11, and I'll explain as I go. Now, this is about Joseph. Joseph in the coat of many colors is how many people know it. And the Bible says here, just as a little mini story to back up this idea of no son or no father would call his son master. The Bible says in Genesis 37, 5-11, Now Joseph, he was the last born and youngest son, by the way, of his whole family of 12. Joseph, uh, Joseph's dad had 12 kids, 12 boys. And so Joseph would have been the youngest of these children. He had a dream. And he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There were these... Uh, binding sheaves in the field. And then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves, speaking of his brothers now, stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Even that he said, I, the youngest son, will be your Lord, my older brothers. That's going to happen. And they were were angry. What? Even the oldest if the father died, then of course the oldest son would you know, assume the responsibilities of the father. And he would kind of become the lord of the household. Yet here Joseph is saying, hey, this is the dream I saw. I'm going to rule over all you, my older brothers. And his older brothers went, what? And then they got angry with him and ended up selling him into slavery because of it. And his brothers said, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion or you could say lordship over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he goes on to say, verse 9, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. Now, in case you're wondering... The sun and the moon and the 11 stars were representations of his father, his mother, and his 11 other brothers. And so what does his dad have to say about that? Let's see what his dad has to say about that. So he told it to his father and brother, and his father rebuked him. Basically, he said, shut your mouth. What do you, what are you saying? Me, your father, bow down to you, my youngest son? This was a complete disrespectful thing to say for the youngest son to the father. He rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. Or you could say his brothers hated him even more, but his father kept this matter in mind. So you see, in Jewish culture, the man of the house, the father, was the Lord. Not the son. Yet David called the son his son, Lord, instead of just his son. So, and it should have been the other way around. The idea of a Jewish father bowing down to his son is ridiculous, which makes Jesus' question and that Psalm 110 kind of make your head tilt. Well, what? A J- David called son, Lord? I, what? I don't understand. But in the answer to why David called his son Lord, we find No more confusion, but what we find is we find it's amazing and we find that it's God's power, okay? So why does David call the Christ or his bloodline son his Lord and Master when it was against Jewish societal norms and any societal norm for that matter? Because, you see, God had revealed to David that the Christ... Even though born of his bloodline and being his physical descendant son was not only his human bloodline son, but also the literal only begotten son of God. Hence the title of our sermon, the son of God and the son of man, you see. Did the ancient Jewish text speak about this idea of the Christ being God's son, like literally? It absolutely did. Look at these prophetic verses that God gave in the Old Testament or your Tanakh if you're Hebrew or you're Jewish and listen to what God has to say in the Old Testament through the prophets about the Christ or the Messiah being his literal son, not just the son of man. If you notice in case also Jesus also carried the title 
the Son of God and the Son of Man. He also carried the title of the Son of David. Maybe now you know why. If you've ever read that over the Bible, and you've been, what does that mean, Son of David? Well, now you know. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies footstool. So Isaiah 7.14, God says first to the prophet Isaiah, Therefore, this is the Lord talking now through Isaiah, or to Isaiah, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's right, it's the great Emmanuel prophecy. Well, the word Emmanuel means God with us. That's the way it's literally translated. God is with us. So God just said there's going to be this woman and she's going to be a virgin, this young woman. In fact, that's what the literal translates out to be. This literal young woman is going to have this baby, but she's not going to be with a man. Well, how is a woman able to have a baby without a man impregnating her? and, And they didn't have in vitro fertilization back then. So in essence here, if it's God with us, there's only one conclusion we can make and that's God made her have that baby from himself. Okay, so God be with us. She'll call his name God with us. That's number one. Micah 5, 2 is the other big one. God goes on to say through Micah, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me. That's talking about the Messiah now. These are both Messianic prophecies. There shall be one come out of you forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be one to rule Israel. That's how we know this is a Messianic prophecy. And how we know that this is from God, and he's going to be a ruler in Israel, and how we know he's eternal and he's also going to be like God, he says here, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Well, there's no man that I've ever known on the face of the planet that's from old, and from everlasting, and from old, and from everlasting. This is, this is someone that was going to be born that wasn't going to die. And then if he's from everlasting, he's from everlasting. What does that mean, from forever? Well, what man do you know that's alive today that's been for forever? No, not one. We all live, and then we all, after we live, we die. But here, this man that was going to come, this Christ who was going to be God's son, <clears throat> was never going to die. He was going to live forever. Look at this one that God gives us. There's just one more that God gives us to show us that the Christ would be David's descendant son as well as his own son, which is exactly our subject of today. Isaiah 9, 6-7. And Isaiah says again, by prophecy, by the Spirit of God, he says, For unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given. So this is talking about a child being born to the Jews. And the government will be upon his shoulders. This is the Christ. He's going to rule the world from Israel or being Jewish. And his name will be called, listen to this kid's name, listen to the Christ's name. His name will be called Wonderful. He'll be called Counselor. He'll be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So here, God's saying, Isaiah, you're going to have the son's going to be born, this child is going to be born, and you're going to call him Everlasting Father. Well, who's that? That's God. That's not a man. That's God. So God says, I'm going to be born into a woman's womb. And, and she's going to have a son, and they're going to call him me. What? Yes, the Christ is God in the human flesh. Isaiah 9, 6, we're gonna, you're going to call him counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, names of Jesus. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there'd be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Remember, I just said it was going to be David's descendant. The Christ is David's descendant. There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I, God Almighty, will perform this virgin bearing this son and this son, you're going to call him God. That's right. God's son. 
And how am I going to do it? By my power. By my might. Praise be to God. So how could David call his son the Christ, his Lord also? Because he knew that the Christ would be the Holy Spiritual Son of God, born through his bloodline. Wow, that's awesome. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Woo! Did they know that answer? Read verse 46 with me. And no one was able to answer him a word. What? What did he just say? We don't know. Oh, no. Yeah. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. The answer, did they understand? Did they know? No. They were completely dumbfounded. What? What did he say? Oh, man. We forgot about that verse. I could just kind of hear those things going on in conversation or, or through them. Jesus just left these brilliant Jewish scholars speechless because they did not know the power of God, you see. It's funny because Jesus had just told that to the Sadducees, Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. When they came and wanted to know which wife of the man and the brother would the son, you know, would, they, would she be in the resurrection, they didn't know the power of God either. And now we see that the Pharisees don't know the power of God as well. Seemed like there was that, that was a pandemic among the spiritual leaders of Israel. They didn't know the power of God. Not only did he leave them speechless, but if you want to think about it, lastly, that verse just said that from that point on, they dared, they dared, think about that word dare, they dared not ask him a question, or in other words, what did that say? They were scared to ask him anything else. So Jesus' question to them made them frightened so that they wouldn't ask him a question anymore. These guys were so brave before Jesus' question to come and attack him and test him with questions. Oh, oh, Jesus, this, and oh, Jesus, that, with their snide remarks and their, and their, and, and their questions that were full of disdain. But now, what did Jesus do? He reduced them to the fools that they really were. You see, they really were fools because they had no fear of God. Solomon, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And these guys pretended to love God in front of others. And they were real good at doing all the religious things and making themselves look holy and, oh, look at me, oh, I'm such a holy guy. But inwardly, they were not really friends of God and they really didn't have a relationship with Him. And, of course, that meant that they didn't really fear Him because they were ignorant of the holy things of God. Had they really had a relationship with God, they would have, they would have accepted Christ, Jesus as the Christ, as the one that God sent because of the works that he showed them and the things that he did. And God would have revealed the answer to them of Jesus' question uh, the same way he did Peter. Uh, this, this same subject came up in my other sermon. You know, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, because Peter knew it. God revealed it to Peter, Matthew 16, 13 through 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, remember the son of God, son of man, it were titles that he carried, who do they say that I am? And so the disciples answered, of others saying, remember, some say John the Baptist, one says, you know, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Oh, you're just a man that's telling us about God. You're, I mean, you're a mighty prophet man, no yet, but you know, you're still just a man kind of telling us about God. But then Jesus says to them, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And now remember, this is before Jesus asked them this question. This is way back in Matthew 16. We're already up to 22. And then Peter says to him, You are the Christ. And, Jesus, and Peter even knew what the Christ was, who he was, the Son of the living God. Peter wasn't confused. Why? Because he humbled himself before God, accepted Jesus. God gave him the revelation that Christ wasn't going to be just the son of David, just a man, a, a human ruler. 
Peter said, no, you're going to be not only the son of David, you're going to be the literal son of the living God. Peter knew. Had these guys humbled themselves as little children like the disciples did before God, God would have revealed to them that Jesus Christ was his son as well. Remember, Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus said, answered and said to them, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. Not in a good way. Remember, wise and prudent was prideful and kind of arrogant. And that's what these Pharisees and Sadducees were. They were prideful and they were arrogant. He's, God's, Jesus just said here that you've hidden these things from these people like the Pharisees and Sadducees and you have revealed them to my disciples, my babes, the ones that have humbled themselves, the ones that aren't prideful, the ones that aren't arrogant, the ones that really love you. Wow. Now in closing, it's sad to say that the majority of the Jewish people then didn't believe in Jesus, especially the religious Pharisees and their leaders. They, they wouldn't accept Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. They only were looking for this powerful man that was going to give them all these benefits. But the sad, you know, but the sad thing is even more than that. More than all the majority of the Jews back then rejecting Jesus and rejecting who he said he was, is the sad thing is, is that even still today, the majority of the Jews even today don't accept Jesus as the Christ or God's Son. I'm going to read something to you. This is very interesting. It's some information on a Jewish website called Judaism 101 about this subject. And, and now mind you, I looked at the bottom of the website, okay, Judaism 101, and it was copyrighted 1998 to 2001. But you're going to be blown away because the information I'm going to read you from this website is, was written just from just, what, 13, 14, 15 years ago around. But the information off this website is going to seem like we're reading out of our Bible from these guys that were questioning Jesus back almost two thousand years ago so on this page called uh the mashiach or the messiah if you go to their website judaism 101 and type in the messiah it'll bring up to this page or, or one of the links will say the mashiach it's their information a jew's information about the mashiach or the messiah that they still are waiting to come Top right-hand corner, I'm going to go ahead and go to the website here, so I'll read it right there from you. Not the whole thing, obviously, the whole page, but just different excerpts from it. And we're going to see how the Jews of today still view their Messiah and even how they view Jesus. Top right-hand corner, we got this here. Big box. Left says Mashiach, the Messiah, and then it has their Hebrew writing. Top right, the idea of Mashiach. Messiah is an ancient one in Judaism. The Jewish idea of Mashiach as a great human leader like King David, not a savior. There is much speculation about when the Mashiach will come. The Bible identifies several tasks that the Mashiach will accomplish. Jews do not believe in Jesus because he did not accomplish these tasks. Now, I'm not making any of this up. This is a modern Jewish website that has this information. I didn't go to the website asking about Jesus, but they felt it was necessary to reject Christ, even in their website, even when people, maybe other Jews are just going there to just see what the Mashiach, what his, you know, kind of things he was going to do when he came. And yet, they find it necessary in big, bold print, top right hand of the corner, uh, top right hand of this page, they have right there at the bottom, Jews do not believe in Jesus because he did not accomplish these tasks. Listen to what they say. The Mashiach idea in Judaism. Belief in the eventual coming of the Mashiach is a basic and fundamental part of traditional Judaism. So they, nobody questioned it is what they're saying here. It is part of Rambam's 13 principles of faith. The minimum requirements of Jewish belief. So this is the Messiah is not a question thing in Judaism. It's just a question of when he's going to come, not if, but when. It's within their 13 principles of faith. In, uh, in their prayer, recited three times daily, we pray for all the elements of the coming of the Mashiach, in gathering of the exiles, 
restoration of the religious courts of justice, listen to this, and end of wickedness, sin and heresy, so they believe all that's going away, reward of the righteous, or reward to the righteous, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, restoration of the line of King David, remember that Christ was going to sit on David's throne, being a descendant of David, restoring the kingship to Israel, you know, to, you know, to the line of David, and restoration of the temple service. So, so what, they don't disagree here with even your Bible. The Bible says all that's going to happen, that Christ the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Messiah, is going to do all those things, but that's going to be his second coming, not his first, is the only difference that we have here. Modern scholars suggest that the Messianic concept was introduced later in the history of Judaism during the age of the prophets. They note that the Messianic concept is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. However, traditional Judaism maintains that the Messianic idea has always been part of Judaism. The Mashiach is not mentioned explicitly in the Torah because the Torah was written in terms that all people could understand. And the abstract concept of a distant spiritual future reward was beyond the comprehension of some people. However, the Torah uh, contains several references to the end of days, which which is the time of the Mashiach. Thus, the concept of the Mashiach was known in most ancient times. And listen, the term Mashiach literally means the anointed one and refers to the ancient practice of anointing kings with oil when they took the throne. The Mashiach is the one who will be anointed as king in the end of days. But then they go on with some more. The Mashiach doesn't mean savior, and that's true. The Mashiach or Messiah means the anointed one. But we know Jesus said, I am the savior of mankind. And in a sense, it doesn't mean savior as they say savior, but it does mean savior because as Jesus or whoever they expect to be the Messiah is going to save the Jews from their enemies, as that Psalm 110 just said, till I make your enemies your footstool. That means that the Messiah is going to come and save the Jews from their enemies. So although they say Mashiach doesn't mean Savior, what the Mashiach or Messiah will do is save the Jews from the enemies. So don't, don't lose that here. He goes on to say, some Gentiles have told me that the term Mashiach is related to the Hebrew term Moshiach or Savior because they sound similar. But he goes on to rebuke that and say that's no and that's true. It doesn't mean Savior, but what he does, he will save his people. And the Jews all agree with that. The, the idea of the Mashiach, just one last little section here. And you'll hear exactly kind of the things that we were hearing from them today. The Mashiach will be a great political leader. Descendant from King David. He'll be who? David's son. They're not rejecting that. They still agree that the Mashiach, the Savior, will be from David's lineage. Jeremiah 23.5. The Mashiach is often referred to, now listen to this, as Mashiach ben David, which means uh, son of David. He will be well versed in Jewish law and observant of its commandments. Isaiah 11.25. He will be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example. He will be a great military leader, and Jesus will be, who will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions, Jeremiah 33, 15. But above all, he will be a human being, not a god. Demigod or other supernatural being. Now, interesting that they write that in there when Isaiah, a prophet of theirs, said, Unto you a son will be born and a child will be given, and on his shoulders a government will be, and you'll call his name Everlasting Father, Mighty God. So even in what they're saying here, they reject their own scriptures because there's still a majority of the Jews that reject Christ today as the Messiah. They only said that. Just to say, we know Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. We reject the idea that the Messiah will be a God. And in so doing, they reject their own scripture. Isaiah chapter 9. Now, wow, that's amazing, but sad. Really, really 
really sad. When I read it over, I couldn't believe the things that I was reading. That they didn't take that from the Old Testament. They didn't take that from your Bible. They took that from what they still believe, guys. That is sad. They still believe in this fictitious character that's going to come, which he is going to come, but he won't be who they thought. He'll be Jesus the Christ, not some just great military ruler. And he will be God because he is God. So today, if you don't believe Jesus is the Mashiach or Messiah or Christ, please don't just have a closed mind about it. Go and do your research. Go do your research on the subject of Jesus Christ being the Messiah and keep an open mind. Don't close your mind off to him being the one. I implore you, I exhort you, I I plead with you, go to the internet. We have such a great tool in the internet. And just type in this search, just this, this search bar. Prophecies Jesus Christ fulfilled that prove him the Messiah. Just type that in. And you'll be amazed at all the different websites that come up that have multitudes of information about whom Jesus was and what he did and the prophecies that he fulfilled. So today, if you're in question or you think you know, well, he's just not because I just need, he can't be. Open your mind. Open your mind. Repent of the hard-heartedness and go and seek for yourself. Just go. Go to the internet. Just look and, and look at the, all the... All the verses from the Bible, all the verses from the Tanakh, all the verses from the Bible as a whole, Jewish or Christian, and see the prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled that only the Messiah could fulfill and would fulfill, and Jesus, as the Messiah, did fulfill. And see just how many things that Jesus did. And I just beg you and implore you, if you're in question or you think, you know, oh, he's just not, don't close your mind. Open your mind up and look for yourself. And as you do, pray. Jehovah, Yahweh, however you call God. You know, many people, even maybe you that are listening to me today, maybe many people, many believe in God, but they don't believe in Christ. Jesus says the Christ. Pray, Jehovah, Yahweh, tell me, show me, am I missing something? Please, God, reveal it to me. Jesus, uh, Peter, or Jesus did say to Peter, flesh and blood is not revealed to you that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, but my holy, my heavenly Father, our heavenly Father in heaven. So this is wisdom and knowledge that you can only gain by God giving it to you. But if you pray, The Bible says, if you seek, you shall find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. And if you ask, you shall receive. So if you pray earnestly to God, is Jesus the Christ, Lord God? Is he really the Christ? Is he really the Messiah? Would you please show me? Then just wait and give God a chance to answer you and seek God on the subject. Because I believe he is. But, but as I said in the beginning, you know, go check it out for yourself. Please. God wants you to. He implore, He's exhorting you to. He's longing for you to. So that He can reveal His truth to you on this subject. Because God, God loves you very much. And He wants to save you. And, you know, please go. Lord, we just uh, come before you, Lord God. And we thank you for this sermon, Lord God. We thank you for this message, Lord God. We just thank you so much, Lord, for your calling people, Lord. I, I just... Pray, Lord God, for any listening today, Lord God, that don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah or Jesus as the Christ, Lord God. I pray that they would do research. I pray that they would just just type in the search, Lord, prophecies Jesus Christ fulfilled that prove him the Messiah, Lord. And just open their minds to what the Tanakh says, Lord, to what the Old Testament of the Christian Bible says, Lord. I pray that you'd open their hearts and I pray that they would seek you. I pray, Lord God, that you would make them doubt their false belief, their belief as they believe that Jesus is not the Christ. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just, Lord, draw them. I pray they'd humble themselves and come. Lord, I love you and I praise you and I thank you. 
And I ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.